So Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord God, we submit ourselves again to the authority of your holy word, asking that your spirit would open our eyes to see and soften our hearts to hear. Show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, and make us your people for the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your name, we pray. Amen. So last week in the first chapter of Esther, we encountered Ahasuerus, king of Persia. Some of your versions probably say Xerxes. In the world's terms, King Ahasuerus, King A will call him, he had it all, all the power and all the money. Every nook and cranny of property and every single person in the entire kingdom were literally his to do whatever he wished. Whatever he said became law. Whomever he commanded became his servant. King A had absolute power and control. The problem was that he was corrupt and selfish and maniacal and egotistical, and capricious in every way. He abused his power to maintain his power. And we pick up his story in Esther chapter 1, where King Ahasuerus, King A, was throwing a six-plus-month-long party to his own awesomeness. His unmatched power and control were on full display, and he was flaunting it and partying like it was, well, 500 B.C., and he owned the world. Esther 1 encapsulates all of this in verse 8 when he commands the partygoers with this edict. There is no compulsion. He commanded the people around to do what they wanted. So his servants did, as the Bible tells us, as each man desired. It made for a, a decadent finish to the week-long grand finale. So King A decided to carry out his own desires and, and to parade his queen before the partygoers, as verse 11 says, for she was lovely to look at. Now, like most of the book of Esther, we aren't told the motivation. <laughs> but the queen wasn't having it. Even though she knew all of the repercussions that could be quite ugly, the text says she refused to be paraded around like some sex object or trophy wife. So the king put her away, set her off to the side, not to be heard from again. Queen Vashti had been dethroned. Which brings us to chapter 2. So it's been four years since the former queen has made her stand and the king was experiencing some remorse. Check this out. Esther 2, verse 1. After these things, meaning after the things that had happened in chapter 1, 
After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, meaning when his anger had died off, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, he remembered is a Hebrew way of saying not that he forgot Vashti, but now that he had calmed down and thought about it, he remembered what had happened and he was having this moment of, oh no, <laughs> what have I done? I am indeed as foolish as that pastor at First Christian Church in Greenville, Tennessee said in a sermon last week. It's a good thing I've got the app to follow along with his sermons. So anyway, King Ahasuerus is experiencing what we'll call worldly regret. And he's having an, oh no, what have I done moment. So verse two, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew how he worked and they were preying on this foolish king's vices. So let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. Now notice two phrases that are repeated here in verses 2 and 3. Young, beautiful virgins and what pleases the king. These two phrases explain everything anyone needs to know about what's really going on here. And the young men who attended the king, they knew exactly how to manipulate him just like the advisors in chapter 1. Hey, King A., how about you go find Queen of Persia 2.0, who will be better than Vashti because not only will she be a beautiful young virgin, but she will be compliant and she will do whatever pleases the king. <laughs> there is nothing, friends, in this worldly king or this kingdom that's pictured here. There's nothing about wisdom or character or virtue or godliness as necessary prerequisites for wielding power. The only criteria here were about pleasing him, pleasing the king. In, if you're tracking, very external and worldly and outward terms. All they were looking for was a beautiful young virgin that would please the king. Well, enter Mordecai and Esther who will eventually become our two main heroes in this story. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Mordecai is named here as the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish which may sound like gibberish to us, of course, but to an Old Testament Jew, it means Mordecai is purebred descendant of the covenant line from which would come the Messiah, the anointed one. He's from the line of Benjamin, one of the original 12 sons. And, and Kish, the last one mentioned here, 
is the father of King Saul. So Mordecai has, has royal blood in his veins, spiritually speaking, and literally. And this story has now become about something way bigger than King A's plans to find Queen of Persia 2.0. Pick it up at verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah was her, her Jewish, her Hebrew name. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. She was an orphan. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, meaning she was beautiful in every way. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken. Now notice the passive language here. Esther also was taken. Ancient Near Eastern kings were not really defied as we like to think that we would all do with our modern individual freedoms. She was taken because that's what kings like this do. She was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Verse 9. And the young woman pleased him, pleased Haggai, and won his favor, foreshadowing. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Most think that at this point, Esther had advanced such that she got Mordecai some sort of official position in King A's royal house or empire that explains how he could keep close tabs on her. Now, in verses 7 to 11, there are a couple cool little clues as to what's happening in the larger story. Now, first, as we already said, King Ahasuerus took Esther into his harem. But he isn't the only one taking Esther. At the end of verse 7, it says that Mordecai took Esther as his own daughter, as part of the description of adopting and caring for her. So we're beginning to see a contrast between what the kings of this world do when they take and what the king of kings does to protect those who are vulnerable. Second clue comes in verse 10, where it says that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Mordecai had instructed Esther to stay sort of hush-hush about her Jewish lineage. Now check this out. The name Esther can also mean hidden in Hebrew. So Esther hiding her nationality is a parallel to the hidden king who was behind the scenes, having not already only provided for her by having Mordecai take her into his own family, but also by subversively advancing her using worldly means to defeat worldly powers at their own game. In fact, there's this Jewish tradition that calls the book of Esther the book of hiddenness because God's name isn't mentioned and his methods are 
sort of hidden behind the scenes until just the right moment when he delivers. So here's how Esther becomes queen. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, a lot of preparation, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, which, yes, is a lot of work. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, there's a lot of seemingly unimportant verbiage spent here describing this kind of weird process. But here's why. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, another little reminder of who had really taken Esther and, and who hadn't. When the turn came for East Esther to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Meaning, she wisely let someone who knew how to win favor with the king lead her. There's a lot of verbiage given here to this admittedly weird process because what we're supposed to see is that she was not just beautiful, but she was wiser than the rest. You see, each girl had one chance and she asked for nothing except what Haggai advised. And others began to take notice that she was more than simply beautiful, but she was also wise. Keep reading. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. But not only does Esther become queen, Mordecai uncovers a plot that saves the king's life. God is putting together something really cool in this book. Keep reading verse, verse uh, 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together, the second time, press pause, which we're not sure about what all this exactly means, but it's been suggested that it was a parade of all those who had been part of the beauty contest that Esther won because of this, it was her coronation. So it was probably something like that. But whatever the case, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate because remember, he had some sort of official royal position. Verse 20. Now Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Now in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. 
And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So on his behalf, on behalf of Mordecai, Esther goes to the king and saves his life. When the affair, verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. More foreshadowing. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. More foreshadowing. Now, I think there are a few helpful lessons for us here today. And the first is this. We all need Mordecai's. We all need someone who who teaches and trains us and who knows us well and can wisely direct us toward God's purposes. You see, (laughs) Esther's character for the right moment was developed somewhere. And you can't just develop character in isolation, but you develop it in community with with others, with Mordecai's who are a part of your life. Friends, we all need to intentionally orient our lives around developing godly character in community. Nobody becomes somebody in God's kingdom without somebody else showing them how. It's called making disciples. We call it helping people find and follow Jesus. So what we need to do if if we don't have a Mordecai is to find a Mordecai and to ask questions and to listen to wise and godly counsel. Secondly, we need to be prepared for faithfulness when opportunity comes. We need to be prepared and ready for acting with faith and trust when opportunity comes. You see, you don't suddenly and instantly become ready to do the right or the godly thing. You prepare beforehand so that you're ready when the time comes. We aren't told all the backstory of Esther's growing up years, nor do we see Mordecai's years of of training and preparing her, but we do see that Esther was wise when it mattered, which means she had been prepared for faithfulness, which happens beforehand. Please don't ever perceive the boring everyday opportunities for faithfulness and doing what is right as pointless simply because they're small. In God's economy, where real power is faithfulness to his character and nature, those boring everyday opportunities for faithfulness in small moments are preparation for something bigger. And they are in themselves the process of becoming ready to stand up with strength when the stakes are high. If you're not preparing then and now, you won't be faithful when it counts. If you're not preparing now, you won't be faithful then. Finally, God's plans are not thwarted by earthly powers, which means that you and I, we can trust that God is taking our lives somewhere, even when it may not be apparent, even when we may not see it. We need to trust that God is using our character, which is forged by that everyday boring faithfulness in the small ways for his larger and hidden kingdom purposes. Trust God to use your life as part of something bigger 
the bigger picture he's painting, the larger story he's telling of redeeming the world to himself and turning sinners into saints through the person and work of Jesus Christ and even through your faithfulness. What this means is that there are no small moments of preparation and faithfulness. Friends, God has put you where you are to use you for things you cannot yet see. Let's take a moment and let's think about today's takeaway question. What do you need to change to find a Mordecai, to build character in community, and to train for faithfulness. Friends, God uses everyday boring faithfulness to prepare his heroes. You see, when the right moment comes and they are faithful because they are prepared, the world will wonder where they came from. But the people of God will know, you will know, I will know. So the question is, are you ready for your next moment of faithfulness? Father in heaven, we want to be men and women. We want to be marriages, families. We want to be a community of believers that says yes in the small ways that seem unimportant in those everyday boring faithfulness kinds of ways so that you will form in us character that has the power that comes from who you are and that doesn't give in to the structures of this world and the the ways that it tempts us, but that we will become men and women who embody your character and nature so that you will use us in opportunities that come in our lives to move the kingdom that you're building forward, to extend your goodness and grace to those around us, to show, to show people who need to see who you are. That you're a God who has plans. That you're a God who is moving. That you're a God who cares about your people. And that you gave us in the person of Jesus. You gave us salvation and provision we couldn't, we couldn't earn for ourselves and that we didn't deserve. So Father, continue to use that amazing truth of the gospel in our lives, that we would preach it with how we speak, how we act, with our everyday boring faithfulness, 
so that we would be a piece, a part of this story that you're writing where you get the glory, where you are on full display, where your son Jesus is proclaimed as the King of Kings. It's in his name we pray, amen.